Dotnet Rocks, episode 1024, with guest Chris Love. Recorded Monday, August 18th, 2014. And that means it's time for .NET Rocks. I'm Indeed. Carl, that's Richard, and Chris Love is here. Just a minute. How are you, sir? I am well. You know, summertime, so I've been tinkering with the hardware in the house, right? And I built a new kitchen computer, bought myself a nice 27-inch Dell touchscreen that has two HDMI inputs and an HDMI audio output. So I was able to put a HD cable box on it and a little mini PC attached to it. Both go through the same TV, and I routed the audio for the machine through the whole house audio system. Oh, that's so cool. You know, uh, you had a one of the first HP Touch Smarts that came out, didn't you? It's five years old now. Yeah. And that was optical touch. It was two touch points, but if you went at certain angles, you could only see one finger and it would freak out. That's crazy. The new touch screens, man, they are so good. Yeah. 10-point touch, absolutely flawless, USB. It's really pretty. Remember when we thought the Surface was the only thing that could do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's just a monitor. It's just there. Yeah. The one thing the old Surface, not the tablet surface but the table yeah. surface was the video piece that it could see your finger that you could lay stuff on top of it right and that's what still hasn't shown up in regular monitors yeah. but close enough i'm pretty happy yeah pretty happy all right man let's roll that funky music hit me all right buddy what do you got well i went out and i looked for some mobile enterprise stuff to see what people were talking about because you know this is a an elusive thing coming up here and Chris Love, our, our guest, has got a lot of opinions and things to share with us, but I wanted to see what else is going on out there on the webs. And I came across this really interesting article. It's short, and it's called uh, Why Mobile in the Enterprise Must Adapt or Die. Hmm. And it's from January this year, and he starts out by dissing programmers. Nice. <laughs> He's like, admit it. Nearly every piece of business software that you've used over the last few years is confusing, poorly designed, and more often than not, makes you want to do something to your computer that would turn you into a viral clip on YouTube. Nice. Yeah. Why is that? So anyway, uh, it comes down to the gist of this article, which is explained in one sentence. Find a way to get all of your data, including your legacy data, mobile accessible ASAP, or you can be sure that your users are going to create security holes that IT will play a losing game of whack-a-mole trying to close. <laughs> and that's pretty much the whole scenario that we have been talking about on the tablet show for these yeah. last couple of years, right? Is that bring your own device is not a good idea, but that's what's happening. Who owns the device is almost a separate conversation, right? It's the main thing is just getting stuff mobile enabled. Yeah, and and the bad part is what happens now is, you know, somebody brings their iPad and then they say, hey, can you give me a little punch through the firewall so I can get that? And then pretty soon it's the whack-a-mole game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they find ways to work around it. They stick stuff on USB keys. They yep. throw up their own wireless access point. Like, they just bypass everything because they see that security model as impediments to work. Yep, exactly. So that's, uh, that's I think, going to start us off in the right direction here on this conversation. But that's what I got. It's uh, uh, tinyurl.com slash mustadapt. So that's it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 970, and that's the one we did a while back talking to Burke Holland when we were talking about mobile development stack. Right. And that was really a focus on enterprise development as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they, that 
trying to bring tools and, and look at these sort of next generation development practices because the the straight up native approach is kind of archaic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Patrick uh, has this comment. Uh, Great discussion as always, guys. As a recipient of one of your last tablet show mugs, I'm grateful that you're continuing the mobile talk on .NET Rocks. And you touched on some interesting topics. Most interesting is the discussion of web-based versus hybrid-based versus native apps mm. on the mobile device. Everyone wants to point out that there is no good write-once-run-everywhere solution, which I think is true. However, in the same breath, you will often hear that they should just write it for the web because it will just, quote, work everywhere. Big lie. Yeah. I think the blinders are on when it comes to where web development fits into the mobile stack. Do you know why mobile apps are winning? Because they provide better experiences. Mm. An application that takes time to properly work with the OS it resides on just feels better. It's an extension of the phone and what I can do with it. If it's just a web page, it's too generic to me. It feels as if the developer didn't care enough about me to bother with a native app. You know, there's more to that. And it's just the fact that it's in a browser gives you all these weird things. Like, for example, when you own the UI... Everything can be disabled until it's ready to be used. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. whereas in a browser, you get what you get when you get it. And you know what? If something just happens to need to change, boom, it's changed. And guess what? It wasn't disabled before and it's not disabled now. You might end up between the time that your finger is in the air and actually touching it, touching something you didn't want to touch. Yeah. And that happens to me all the time. Oh, how many times you got a page that's still rendering? You're going to click on something and it moves just before you click. That's right. It happens right. all the time. Very obnoxious. Yep. Uh, Patrick goes on to say, I would also disagree with Burke's point that people don't notice when they're doing a native app versus a web app. That is the exact reason that Facebook gave up on their HTML5 for all apps approach and gave in and did a proper native app for each platform. The performance didn't match native. Users may not have been able to accurately describe why they didn't like the original app, but they knew that something was off. There's a time and a place for native and web apps, but I would argue far less than you guys were alluding to. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if the Facebook app's a fair judge there, because clearly it was shown that the Facebook guys didn't know enough about mobile web development to do a a really great job, and subsequently there's been better apps built. Right. But there's still a core argument here about utilizing the device well, and that generic web design is not sufficient for a really great mobile experience. And there are ways of avoiding the problems that Richard and I were just talking about, but nobody does them. And you have to think about it. Well, it's not that nobody does them, but it's very rare. Yeah, absolutely. So, Patrick, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. You'll have one of the few lucky pairs out there. Yep. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. That brings us to our guest, Chris Love. He's been a guest on the Tablet Show, but his first time on .NET Rocks. He has over 20 years. Yes, that's right. 20 years of web development experience. You know, back before CSS and JavaScript. He's built a wide variety of websites and applications in those years. In recent years, he's immersed himself into the modern web application space and lives almost entirely above the API. Currently, he's focusing on solving problems developers and architects are having, adopting a winning mobile-first web strategy. He's authored three books, including his latest, high-performance single-page web applications. He's a seven-time ASP.NET MVP award winner, member of the ASP Insiders and Internet Explorer user agents. He also has authored several JavaScript libraries. 
Chris regularly speaks at user groups, code camps, and other developer events about modern web development topics. Welcome, Chris. Hey, great to be here, guys. Great to have you. What do you think about all this stuff that we kicked the show off with? I mean, nothing like getting right into it, right? Yeah, you know, um, I, I haven't listened to Burke's uh, interview yet. Um, I'm kind of actually making my way backwards to through some of the episodes here lately, and I'll get there soon. Uh, but Patrick's comments don't surprise me, but I think they're very short-sighted. And I think you made a comment there, Richard, about the, I guess, the generic website just doesn't get it anymore. And I think the, one of the problems is that we got too many developers who are really well-versed in below-the-API architecture and techniques, and they just kind of haphazardly do the, the client side or above the API. And we don't have enough developers who I think actually understand how the browser actually works. And we certainly don't have developers who think with that side of the brain that can apply some design aspects to it. I'm not necessarily sure I'm really one of them, but I do take time to, to kind of study user experience. And I pay attention a lot to native applications that are I consider successful, hmm. especially the way they actually allow people to interact with them. And I try to figure out what works, doesn't work. And I usually can see how to do that and implement that using HTML, CSS, and you know, a little sprinkle of JavaScript, depending on what the scenario is. And one of the things that I'm I'm continually uh, kind of hitting as I go in and out of enterprises working on projects is kind of a short-sighted view of what the web can do and how they can actually apply it to their to their business model. And Richard, you're absolutely right. I think what we're probably going to see is the frustration is going to be built up enough from the business side, the, the, the stakeholders and the, the line of business employees, where they're just going to do what they did 10 years ago, create an access-based application st sitting on the manager's desk, except now they're going to learn how to spin up something in Azure or Amazon or Rackspace and, and just create their own little thing. And they're going to hire somebody like me on the side and get a simple solution done so they can get their work done. Mm. Yeah. You know, uh, getting back to the whole buttons moving on you problem that uh, the browser has, this is sort of by design. I mean, w initially, when Chris, you, you've got as much web experience as, as we do. I mean, we were building web stuff back in 93, 94 when, when it first became popular. And I remember, you know, the whole the, – remember the whole tables are evil thing, right? Tables were used to do layout before CSS was a thing. And then uh, as soon as CSS came around, you know, everybody abandoned their tables for more intelligent layout that's more... Uh, well, I don't, I don't know that they did. It took well, them a they, while before... Yeah, yeah, but they were supposed to, right? I mean, that was the word. The word on the street it, it took was... A, it took a long time. It took a while for me to figure out how to do it. Cause right. I'll be honest. I, I've actually been auditing where I spend my time. And if it wasn't for me, you know, writing my own libraries to solve some UI problems or, or build a spa infrastructure... Hmm. 80 to 90% of my time would be pushing pixels in CSS. Yeah. Well, I mean, the point that I wanted to make was that one of the things that was good about putting things in tables is that, it, you know, the locations of things didn't change. You got you got blank spaces before the, the JPEGs came in and before all the content came in, but it didn't move around on you, 
you know? Well, well, the way browsers actually render tables, they they wait until all that content's been processed and then they render them. It's 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 almost as bad as putting your JavaScript in the top of your document. Yeah. And that's one of the problems. What you're describing uh, with the page jumping, I, 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 I'm seeing it more and more lately. Um, it's really pronounced lately, I guess. But I think part of it, or a big chunk of it, is third-party scripts that are writing content mm -hmm. in the browser. And what that's causing the browsers to do is go back through the critical rendering path. And most developers have never even heard that term, unless you're like a, a web performance geek like I am. Uh, more or less what that is, that's the, the, the rendering workflow that the browsers go through to actually render stuff. And so like if you put your CSS at the bottom, that'll trigger a complete repaint reflow all the way back through this critical rendering path uh, sort of thing. Hmm. And so what's happening is a lot of times is uh, fonts are loading. That's another thing that causes uh, the jank mm -hmm. um, that's causing the, the pages to move and, and essentially get repainted on the page. Um, and these scripts are, are kind of delay loading stuff. For example, I use Discuss on my blog to do comments because I really did not want to get into the comment spam filtering. Yeah. Great example, by the way. Yeah, Discuss is one of those things that just boink, new content comes up and everything moves around. Yeah, I believe it loads 19 JavaScripts uh, to get that Ouch. stuff loaded. Yeah. So what I did on my blog was I'm like, well, I want the, I want the reader to not be impacted by it. So one of the things... If you're below a certain uh, screen size or breakpoint, what I do is I don't even load the discuss libraries at all. So there's no comments if you're on the phone, for example, because I, I really felt like the chances of somebody really wanting to leave a comment on my blog if they're on the phone was probably a lot slimmer than if they were on a desktop. Right. But even on the desktop, what I do is I will delay load uh, those scripts so that uh, it gives you a second or two for the page to actually stabilize and then it'll inject those scripts and they'll write their content after the page is there. And I found it doesn't you know, cause any kind of movement and maybe because of the way I've actually set up the scrolling on my page and things like that, because that, that element that's containing the, the article itself is very vertically flexible. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to do it. There's ways to do it. Um, and this is something I've kind of been on a little soapbox over the last few months. I think developers need to understand how the browser works. And I, I see a lot of deficiency there. Like I just said, you know, like the critical rendering path, mm. um, you know, understanding just the basics of the DOM API, it's really not that complicated. I think a lot of developers are scared to death of it. And we've had things like jQuery that abstracted, you know, that stuff. And it was, it was needed back, you know, in 2006, 2007, because we really only had get element by ID at the time. Right. And, what jQuery did was it actually went through and processed the markup for us to find the elements. But because of that, the browsers have added all these native selector APIs, and we don't have to do that anymore, and they're really fast. And there's a lot of other new APIs. I'm still amazed how many developers don't realize there's the geolocation APIs built into the browsers. Yeah. They've been there for five years or so. Um, and most of these APIs are very simple to work with. Um, if I was doing game development, it'd be a lot more complicated because I'd be playing with something like WebGL, and that's a very complicated API. But your general line of business application doesn't need something like WebGL to have to operate. Um, it's more a matter of getting a decent understanding of CSS and, and things like that, in my opinion. I'm thinking back to Souter's second book. I think it's it's like from 2009. 
uh, even faster mm-hmm. websites. He talked a lot about that whole re-rendering process in CSS. Exactly. Five years ago. Yeah. But And yet we're all making the same complaint. Like in the past year, this has become a real problem. Is it we're just starting to use CSS finally? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, badly. <laughs> you know... Um, you know, you had Nick and Anthony, the the Glumps guys, on a month or so ago. Yeah, and I yeah. was just I was just sitting there doing a happy dance as I was listening to to them talk because, I, you know, I've gotten to be good friends with them over the last uh, year or two, and and we've we've kind of crossed paths at some performance events, and and you know they were just sitting there telling saying the same thing. We've got all this knowledge; it's been proven years ago, and you've got the the Chrome team, the Internet Explorer team, and to a small degree the Firefox team out there trying to reach out to developers to teach developers how to build web pages efficiently. And it's almost like everybody's just ignoring the advice. And this is one of the reasons why the web experience is generally classified as not as good as native. I can build web experiences that are faster than native, in my opinion, because I'm always having to wait on a native application to load on every platform, and it drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. But my web pages, I can make those load within, within under, especially over Wi-Fi, definitely under a second. Yeah, if you've got good bandwidth. Even over cellular, I'm looking at, generally when I clock my web applications, like with Web Page Test, which is a great synthetic testing tool, um, I'm you know, even over the cellular connections, I'm getting two to three uh, render times so mm. that it, the, the content's uh, actionable. And my personal experience on, on my phones over cellular is, is even faster than that. So, wow. um, you know, it, 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 it all depends on how you architect it. And I think one of the things, if you look at HTTP Archive, which is something Steve Souders runs, the size of web pages is growing astronomically right yes, now. Yes, it is. The average web page is about two megabytes. Ouch. And, yeah, and I like to put that in perspective. Yeah. Um, my 186-page master's thesis fit on a, a three and a half inch floppy disk with a meg and a half or meg and a, uh, meg, 1.2 megs to spare space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So put that in perspective. Uh, if your web page is uh, huge, uh, that's a that's a clear code smell to me. I remember when talking about a web page being a megabyte was a joke. It was a gag. Yeah, you know that there was no way you would ever make a page that big. That's just silly. Well, and you know, when, remember when uh, Flash was popular because it was so small, and Silverlight's goal when it was coming out was to be really small, and um, you know, a, a library like Silverlight was two megs. Yeah, yeah. And now we have web pages that size. Right. I've seen Silverlight apps that are massively bigger than that. But no, no, uh, no. I know, but the, I mean, the library itself was oh, it was like two or three megs. Yeah, two to. F- uh, I think I got it down to two and a half on the last Silverlight project I was called in to help out with. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's one of the problems. Uh, and you know, you, the Patrick mentioned uh, the Facebook application, and that's why they dumped HTML. If if you actually look at how they've architected the Facebook web application. It's uh, an example of everything you probably shouldn't do to build a website. Yeah, it's uh, it's just extremely bulky. Every single API request is huge, and it, I, there's no wonder why it's slow, in my opinion. They could they could redo that very easily and make it extremely fast. Hey, folks, this is a good time to tell you about Coder Camps. Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. They've been around for over a year now, and the results are just amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they've made it even better by letting students attend online. Check them out at CoderCamps.com. You know, something you said early on, Chris, that really hit me was 
80% of your time spent on CSS. Mm-hmm. That's something I've just, it's not something I've scientifically done. It's one of those things when I go back and what did I do this week? Mm. And it's been CSS. And it's been things like, we've got our web application. Um, it's full of forms because it's a line of business data entry thing. And we suddenly realized we need to make it work on the iPad because right. a customer X only uses iPads. So I'm going in and they, they're like, well, you know, this kind of makes us realize we need to start hitting that that full device possibility to the screen. I call it device nirvana. Mm. Um, just all kinds of device sizes. You, we can't predict what kind of screen the end user is going to be on anymore. That that fixed width, 960 pixel wide mm-hmm. website is just not going to happen anymore yep. and, and be successful. So I go in and I try to make these things responsive and, and it's really pushed my, my, I guess my range of how do you design a responsive web form? And what does that really look like as opposed to the little teeny tiny, you know, native app kind of scenarios uh, that most little native applications are effectively, what, two to six possible screens. If they're, you know, not a game, I'm not, I don't really count those as far of my audit of what's going on out there. But hmm. uh, there's not a whole lot of depth to them. But yet I've built some web applications that have as much as 400 screens in that application. And you know you need a you need a good pattern and path to kind of follow. You need to have some consistency there, and you need to really kind of study and evaluate how can people actually use this efficiently, and and what are their are they are they able actually to accomplish these tasks in these different screen sizes, and if not, how do we adjust our user experience so that we can make them successful without frustration? And that's uh, there's two things that the end users uh, consistently say they want and they, they, they kind of flip flop back and forth as far as one and two. Um, the last survey I saw, so I'm going to quote is performance, make it load and respond fast. And mm-hmm. the number, the number two thing, which is really right there with it is make it easy to navigate and figure out how to solve, you know, do task. And everything after that was just butter, but those two are the number two, one and two things. And I don't see either one of those things really being addressed by the, uh, the typical enterprise application or an enterprise that, that has a consumer face. That's another thing you got to think about. A lot of enterprises mm-hmm. have to have a consumer face because that's just the nature of their business, whether it be uh, direct to retail uh, or direct to customers that are business to business kind of scenario. I guess that's the big question is what's the big enterprise opportunity here? Is it a B2C thing providing consumers ability to consume your product, whatever it is over the phone, or is it more interactive between your businesses? I think you have to look at what are your customers for your application. How can I make my customers, or it, it, you know, if it's my fellow employees, how can I make their life better? Um, I got I got to share this, and I'm probably going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> Saturday morning, I was out to brunch with my wife, and for a whole hour, she's venting on me about the frustration she's having with the developers in her company because they are making her life very difficult, and they're in a the product she deals with is a is a business to business kind of scenario, and she has to deal with the customers and feel the heat from them, and she's passing along to the developers who just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, oh well, whatever. And I've looked at you know I've seen the application. I try to stay away from it, uh, be honest with you, because it, the story she tells me really make my skin crawl. But <laughs> 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 but it, but it's a common scenario. You've got. You've got a, a, a set of developers who are very well versed at doing services and uh, service busy kind of things and data 
and that kind of stuff. And they're being asked to build these front ends, and but yet they're not really well versed into how to architect those. And it's not, you know, in the past, we, we have what I call a classic request response model where you would request a page and you just, the server would compose it and just hurl it up to the browser and it would render it, you know, the, the web forms kind of deal, right? Right. But today, everybody's expecting a richer experience. Um, and, you know, there's something I, I call uh, user-first development. I've got a little triangle of things. And each side of the triangle represents uh, first-class features you need to program into your application. Uh, one of them is performance. One of them is a mobile-first approach. And then the last one is touch. And those are things that I see most developers kind of ignoring. And, you know, I can, I'm getting to the point now where I can just look at a, the waterfall of a page loading or just watch it load. And I can see what I call code smells based on the, on that, those behaviors and, and just a simple waterfall. Wow. And, you know, it's things like unnecessary libraries, duplicate library references, um, 60 JavaScript files loading when you need like one or two and right. uh, not and not understanding how to optimize images and combine them to sprites, uh, bundling minification, not turning on compression for text-based uh, assets and things like that. Uh, you know, just the basic stuff that Stouters pointed out in that first book so long ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're not that hard to implement, but I think the more I go into these enterprises, I think what's happened is they've built up so much scar tissue defining these applications that it's really hard to undo them. And I'll give you a good example. It's not a project I've worked on, but it's a, a website that I use quite a bit. And I happened to run into two of the engineers that actually do the development on this site at a conference this summer. And I was like, hey, guys, the homepage got really fast all of a sudden, but the rest of the site's slow and buggy. <laughs> Uh, and they said, they said, yeah, we want to fix the rest of the site, but they won't fund us. Oh. They, and they were like, can you just complain more to them so that they will fund us so we can fix the rest of the site? Nice. Yeah. But, you know, they've got so much scar tissue. And the pages, even though they're using the same header, the same footer, you know, basically the masthead footer kind of scenario um, across all the pages and more or less all the scripts and stuff, they're all being requested the same across most of the pages. They weren't, they aren't reusing those assets. So like in ASP and VC, we might have a partial view that would get reused or uh, what was it in the ASCX files and, and web forms, right. you know, to help you make those consistent layouts. I don't, I'm not seeing those practices, uh, you know, executed in the in enterprise the way I kind of expect they would be at this point. And uh, that's leading to, to some of these problems, for example. Um, there's, there's all kinds of scenarios. I've seen more than I, than I really ever dreamed I would see at this point. I'm wondering if we need to bring the designer in the loop, especially when we're talking like the B to C thing, just to really lay out a good mobile app, whether web or otherwise, but specifically web, like building a great mobile web experience just feels like we don't have a good template. Yeah, well, you say designer, and I'm going to counter that. I've, I've not seen many designers that get it. They make good choices like with color schemes and things. Yeah. What we really what we really need is uh, somebody to do usability testing and prototyping, and we need patience from if it's a budget if it's got enough budget, let's just set up a lab with some possible customers and watch and see how they actually use different ass you know different sure. metaphors that we give them, and that way we can go back and we can kind of figure out how to build that experience for them, and meanwhile you can 
the other thing too, I think we really need to divide developers. We need to kind of pick sides at this point. We're going, we're effectively moving up to from high school varsity into college right now. Mm-hmm. You know, when I played football in high school, I was the left guard and the place kicker. I went to college to be the place kicker. I wound up being the long snapper, you know, but all the other guys I went to college and played football with, they were, they were super good athletes. I was like the exception. I was just lucky to be there. <laughs> <laughs> But these guys were they these guys were, you know, typically two way all conference stars at their high school. Most of them were all state, at least on one side of the football, and um they they were probably all conference in basketball or baseball or wrestling or whatever it might be. But when you when you move up to that next level, you don't have the ability to kind of distract yourself with having to learn everything and and at every position on the field in depth. You just can't do it. You have to focus on a position and become really good at that position. And it may translate well from going from inside linebacker to outside linebacker, for example, but, but there's, a, there's a big difference between the two. The skills are somewhat translatable, but going from inside linebacker to say running back, that's a totally different scenario right there. Hmm. Yeah. And it's a big leap. So somebody who actually gets their head around UX should be specializing in it. Um, I think so. And I think you've got to have, you got to have a little bit of a passion for for that side of it. And I think the way a lot of developers' brains work, the problems they want to solve are absolute problems. And I'll give you a good way to test this out. Um, I see a lot of developers who just just put a lot of energy in, how are we going to unit test our JavaScript? Right. And, I, and I'm like, well, there's not a whole lot. You really probably actually need to unit test because you can't really automate testing of a lot. I cannot write... Uh, an assertion named assert engages user. It's, it just doesn't happen. And that really, that, that really, <laughs> I, I just took a minute to sink in, Chris. That's awesome. Yeah, great. Right. It's like, Oh, the little, little pop-up you engage the user. Well done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that frustrates a lot of these developers because they look at me really funny. Like, what do you mean? I have to, I have to have something I can put into my continuous build to verify that I have built this application to user requirements. And I'm like, there's no way you can do that. Right. Half the time you're just guessing, you know, does this menu metaphor work for this application and these users? The funny thing is developers work in that ambiguity all the time. No code is ever finished, right? Is nothing's ever perfect. It's just a question of, are you making it better? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, when I wrote Deep Tissue a year and a half ago, you know my touch gesture abstraction library. Right. I really, I really struggled with how the heck am I going to unit test this? What a nightmare! Because I would have to effectively write some sort of mocking mechanism to mock the way pointer events work, the way touch event works, the way mouse events work. Yeah. And mock up those scenarios. And I said, screw that. What I did was I built a a way to actually sit there and just touch the screen echo out what kind of data was coming back so I could physically see it because I couldn't set a breakpoint because that really threw off things like swipe and move because all of a sudden I'm hesitating and now the calculations are going to be broken. So that's not going to work. You know, it was all these various scenarios. And so I had to physically see if I put my finger on this block and move it around the screen, am I getting the coordinates that match up roughly to what I think it's supposed to be doing? But more importantly, is that box moving around the screen the way I want it to? And does it feel natural? And those were the things that were important to me. You know, I don't know that I've played with a touch website that I've loved. 
When you say a touch website, do you just mean a website that works well with your finger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Much less on mobile device. I'm talking about anything. Like that kitchen machine I mentioned at the top of the show, there's no keyboard, right? We haven't put the keyboard out at all. It's all touch. And you can make websites work. But if I, have I hit one where I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing? I can't think of one. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Richard. It's very rarely that I'm impressed. But, you know, I have been impressed. Well, and I think a lot of developers, I don't know that they really know the touch stuff well enough. They haven't taken the time to, you know, see what's out there. We've got some sites that are built towards Apple's touch API. And, you know, those are events that are mimicked right off the mouse API, except they only trigger in the scenario of touch and they only work on iOS, you know, so iPhone and, and uh, iPad. But I mean, then, what do you really need besides having bigger buttons and fonts and things that are touchable? I mean, is there is there more to it than that? Um, yeah, there is. Uh, one of the uh, one of the the scenarios that I see talked about a lot is say scrolling. And I was at Velocity, which is a, a web performance optimization conference, back in June. Speaking to Steve Souders. Exactly. He runs and keynotes and chair note chairs at conference. Awesome conference. Um, but, uh, there were two libraries released that week for scrolling. And I, I, I talked to one of the authors about, well, why didn't you just use the, the native CSS, uh, settings? And I'm not even sure he was aware that there were CSS properties that you could set on elements to make them naturally scroll on iOS and Windows. And, and he he definitely did not know anything about the Windows stuff because he developed on a Mac, right? And that's where and that's where we're getting a lot of you know I guess uh, movement as far as people building modern applications. It's the I would call it the uh, the pizza crowd uh, that right. that really just works on a MacBook, right? And Macs don't support touch, and I don't think they necessarily even know that. And on top of it, they're definitely not using Internet Explorer, and the Internet Explorer team has done a bang up job making touch a first class citizen. Mm. And really giving and making it easy for developers to build a natural, um, you know, natural native looking touch experience in the browser. And I, and I think they had to because when Microsoft decided to do WinJS, they needed it to be the same experience as if you were doing the, the XAML and C++ kind of stuff. Chris, hold that point right there because it's time for something that Richard knows what it's time for. Don't you, ah, Richard? Ah, the happy time. It's time for the happy time. Yep. Time to follow the render chain back to the source of dumbness. <laughs> <laughs> I find that render chain all the time. <laughs> ah, follow the breadcrumbs. Nice. Nope, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, join the Telerik Kendo UI Q214 release webinar, Enterprise UI for Every Device. This free webinar will showcase all the new goodies in the latest release, including data management and visualization additions, which are Gantt chart, pivot grid, and tree map, mobile widget support for AngularJS, and lots more. Register now at Telerik.com slash Kendo-UI slash release webinar. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? It's Keith Lawrence from Dublin, Georgia. Congratulations, Keith. Golf clap for you, sir. Down in the land of red clay. Indeed. Yes, sir. And Keith just won a Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a whole bunch of goodness from Telerik in one box. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. 
We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. So, Chris, we like to ask our guests here, uh, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? You know, I just bought a Surface 3 Pro i7 with a half a terabyte storage and 8 gigs of RAM. Mm Mm-hmm. But I already have it, so mm-hmm. <laughs> that would take a big chunk of that if, if I didn't have it. But There's got to be some other technology that you want. You know what I would actually probably uh, set it up? I would set up uh, credits in Azure or, or Amazon and have the a lot of cloud space to play with yeah. and build backends for applications and stuff because it just it makes so much sense now. Yeah. Um, so that's that's probably where I would I would invest that five thousand dollars and try to parlay that into even bigger rewards. And you get a lot of cloud for a couple of grand. Like it's unbelievable. Oh yeah. It is not easy to spend that much money on cloud until you're really running a hell of a lot of infrastructure at a lot of velocity. Yep. So you know, I've had I've had S three set up to host the images on my blog and I've started using Route fifty three, which is DNS on Amazon. And my monthly before I edited up the DNS for this S3 with CloudFront, which is the CDN, was about eight cents a month. Wow. Choose. Yeah. Eight cents. It's not even worth sending the bill. Wow. I know. I know. So yeah, I would go it would go a long way. But uh, and I've got, you know, on Azure I've got a virtual machine set up and gosh, that's like forty or fifty dollars or something a month, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's just so cheap. I used to I'll put it in perspective. I used to have servers and a half rack at a data center in Raleigh when I was there. Hmm. And I paid about $450 a month for that space. And I believe five terabytes of data or ter- I can't remember how many, you know, what the bandwidth was, but yeah. if I went over, it was extremely expensive on the bandwidth, you know, but today I can just spin up a virtual machine in a matter of a minute and I'm good to go. It's just a matter of me configuring whatever websites and whatever else I need to have set up on that server. Pretty amazing. That's awesome. Pretty amazing. Yep. So you were talking about IE and how the IE team did a really good job of handling touch. Yeah, they did a lot of things. They um, they created the Porter events, and they've also added several CSS uh, uh, accoutrements, shall we say, um, to to the world. But you know, when I set it up and I, you know, I set up a scrolling thing with just the CSS, it really does flow naturally. It's got a little bounce effect for me, mm. and I didn't have to write any code other than just set a couple of CSS properties. And that's really how it should be. It, it shouldn't have to be a lot of effort of heavy lifting in JavaScript because that's never going to be very efficient. Now, are these CSS accoutrement, you say, uh, just in IE? Or can they go anywhere? If they're CSS, they can go anywhere, right? Well, the Internet Explorer team is the one that implemented their set. Um, the mobile Safari team implemented a couple of extra properties that are still WebKit prefixed. And they work fairly nicely. Uh, the, one of the big problems is Chrome is just kind of not participated in this touch thing very well. Wow. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned it before in some of our conversations on here. Uh, it, it's really been behind. And it's really been frustrating to me because I really know this touch thing works. They have, they've had touch on Android for a while, but it's been uh, a reverse engineered uh, in implementation of Apple's patented remind let me remind you touch api and um 
as far as the desktop, they didn't even enable pinch zoom in the browser until a few months ago. And that was very frustrating because in Internet Explorer, I just, you know, pinch zoom my fingers and I can make the text bigger and easier to read. Right. But in Chrome, I had to actually sit there and hit control plus, 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 you know, it just felt antiquated to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I sent you some, some stuff, Carl, and I posted a blog this morning. Friday, the Chrome team finally announced after about two years of kind of him and hawing that they're not going to implement the pointer events, which is very disappointing. Right. And that was something the Internet Explorer team uh, built and designed. They got it through the W3C to recommendation status uh, very quickly, about a year and a half ago, actually, is when it finally became recommended. Uh, I think it was May of 2013. Mm -hmm. And uh, MS OpenTech actually went to the effort and created a build of WebKit that supported pointer events, gave the source code to the WebKit, uh, whatever, I assume they checked it in. I can't verify that, but... And they've also helped Firefox implement the pointer events. And I believe pointer events are implemented in Aurora, which is kind of the Firefox beta. There's a couple of different steps they go through. Right. I'm not sure how far along it's made it there. But Friday, the Chrome team announced they're, they're not going to support pointer events, even though earlier in the year they announced it was a priority as far as their you know their, their goals for this year was to get that implemented. And what what pointer events do is they it distills mouse... Uh, touch and yeah. pin events into a common API, and it's built so that there, you know, if there's other input modalities, we'll call them, that come along, that they could also be distilled into that interface as well. Right. Which makes it a whole lot easier for developers to write code to hook into those events. Now we saw a demonstration of this on the road trip in Ireland, didn't we, Richard? Yeah. And um, Josh Holmes did a talk about mm -hmm. this, and and we were all like. Yeah, okay, so when's this coming to all the browsers? And the answer was soon. And uh, that's a, shame, a real shame that it didn't work out. And it, it obviously hasn't. And there's an interesting part about this, which is that one of their main arguments is that Safari on the iPhone does won't support it. They only support their touch events, which is Apple's patented API. Yeah, and that's also in an article I read where they were calling Mobile Safari the modern IE six. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. Apple did has a patent on those touch APIs, and you know the W three C was about to close. Uh, was it a call for comments or whatever it is they do in their process? Yeah, on those a few years back, and at the very last minute, the Apple lawyer showed up and said, "We've got patents." And, huh. You know, gave them that little Cheshire grin. And wow. Yeah, it caused the W3C to kind of step back and go, well, do we ratify this? Because can they sue the W3C? Yeah. And after, I, I forget how long it took, a year, year, two years. They finally said, well, we can make it a recommendation. They can't sue us. They can only sue the people who implement it, which right now would be Android or Chrome and um, the WebKit crowd. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Apple does there or if the Google folks are going to work out some sort of licensing deal or something. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen there. But – it seems like these are both between that patent and this sort of goofing around on the on the pointer events. This is what we were afraid of with the browsers that they would diverge. That there's this mm -hmm. this is political infighting, not good technology. Right. You know, and that's that that's something I can't say if it's politically motivated or not. I know a lot of the Chrome engineers were real excited about pointer events. Um, and then all of a sudden, just kind of a, a, an abrupt about face. 
Yeah. And the and the they they brought up three points, and I'm not real sure each one of those points was really valid. Uh, they they talked about performance, and you know the the performance that I've seen that it takes to get the pointer events to work is less than a frame refresh cycle, which is you know 16 milliseconds. Um, so that shouldn't be that impactful. Um, and they they mentioned scroll. I've got to do a little more investigating to kind of unwind what they were saying about the scroll interaction with the with the touch events and yeah. and stuff. And I got a feeling it just felt like it was the approach that the Chrome team's taking to scroll is why it doesn't work as well, and why the IE team approach actually worked very well. Interesting. Yeah, the other side of it too. I think um, Chrome doesn't support any kind of gestures, and I think part of that from talking to the guys on the IE team just to let you know is that it takes uh kind of some deep hooks into system level uh stuff kind of the hardware level to get the gestures to work right and that's why you know uh mobile safari supports has extends the touch events with the gesture api as well Mm. um they did mention it sounded like kind of implementing um the, I guess Android's got a, a gesture API for the native applications, and they kind of implied they might implement that, which would mean we'd have three different gesture APIs oh, at that point. Oh, man. Here we go. Oh, yep. Yeah. Started again. Which is, which is all bad. Exactly. And the whole reason that pointer events even came along is because of those Apple patents. That was a big part of it. Plus, the IE team kind of looked at it and said, what is this going to feel like to the developer to have to write code for mouse and touch? And then what about the pen? And then what about anything else that comes along? I mean, if you've seen the way that you can actually run Internet Explorer on the Xbox, whether it's 360 or uh, Xbox One, that you can do it through voice commands and hand gestures. How do those map through? Right. You know, we can make an API that really makes those pop as well. But what about we just distill that into the pointer events model and we don't have to worry about rewriting our code. The browser vendors just make a context that's just nice and easy for us to, to implement this. And this is what I don't understand. Apple had an opportunity to grant free licenses for those patents, and everybody would have poured energy into the touch events. They chose not to, and so the W3C had to back off. Microsoft mm-hmm. comes up with an alternative to avoid the patent issues, right? And they, and they make it available for everybody for free. Make it for everybody free. And they even go to the length of checking code or adding code to the other, the other browser's code bases, too, which is nice. Hmm. Right, and Google bails on it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And so touch is garbled. Like, this is going to impact touch for an extended period of time. We sort of have to start over again. We have to start over. That's the deal. Yeah, and, you know, and it comes back to just making your app work well in touch without those things. You know, that's that's what we're have, we have to do now. Well, how much? I wonder how much of this just... A problem because web mo, so many web developers work on Macs and don't have touch in their regular life anyway. That, that's one of the points I was making. It, uh, you know, in, in the Chrome team, every one of them I have met works on a MacBook. Right. No touch there. No touch. Mm. And I cannot I, at this point I can't understand why Apple has not released a MacBook with touch on it. Maybe they don't want to cannibalize their iPad business. Yeah. Well, well, you can go down to the Walmart or the Best Buy or, or what have you. And for four to five hundred dollars, buy a fourteen-inch touch-capable laptop. In most cases, it may not be the most powerful machine, but touch. And you know, when I when I'm in an enterprise and somebody gets a touch machine, in fact, this comment was made this past week in a meeting. One of the upper-level managers had gotten a brand new machine and it had touch on it. And he's like, "I don't know what I did before touch. I didn't think I was going to use it." 
but I'm using, I'm touching the screen all the time. Right. And it's not something because you had Billy Hollis on a year or two ago, I think, and he was talking about the gorilla arm syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's and it and it doesn't happen. And I notice when I'm on a machine that doesn't have touch now, I'm constantly hitting the screen. I'm getting frustrated. Yep. The moving the mouse is is a cumbersome event to me now because it's it's an indirect modality, whereas touch is direct. I can get it really fast. But they can work together too. I mean, you can have absolutely. you can use both mouse and touch at the same time, and you know avoid the gorilla arm and all of that. Hey, I want to take a minute real quickly to say if you're an experienced developer or project manager looking for a change of pace, consider working with me and my world class team at App V Next, building the next generation of Internet of Things and NUI apps. Are you in? Check out AppVNext.com. Then go ahead and send me your resume. All right, I'm going to throw a speculation in here. Go for it. Okay. Because I'm a cynical guy. I've been doing this a long time. And and we thought through all this stuff. And we know Apple knows how to build good touch devices. Yep. The iPad is immaculate. It's amazing. Yep. Maybe we're actually witnessing an internal battle inside of Apple that the Mac OS guys and the iOS guys are fighting with each other. And that iOS wants to go across all devices, including laptops, and the Mac OS guys are trying to defend their turf. Hmm. Like I said, speculation, but how many times have we seen this sort of stuff in other companies like Microsoft, where the customer is ultimately suffering because of a fight between teams? Yep, could very well be, Richard. I wouldn't even know where to start on that one. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> because iOS is clearly growing up and getting bigger and more mature. And like, you look at a full-size iPad with a keyboard attached, it's not just not that far from an Air. You no, know, it's, it's not. pretty pretty close form so factor. why wouldn't they want to be in the laptop space there is got to be a conflict between the two in, within the organization about that well i think that's telling too that's their customer saying we want a portal device that really is like the surface to do stuff on and we want to be productive although you can't really point to the surface as a great success of that i'm seeing more surfaces in the wild than I used to, which is a good sign. But I'll tell you what I'm also seeing. I'm seeing lots of MacBooks, when I'm, especially in the airports. Uh, I am seeing Macs everywhere. And mm. that's, to me right now, that's the hardware that Microsoft has got to battle. Mm-hmm. And they need, they need the Dells and the Lenovo's to really stand up and say, we've got to battle this MacBook thing. But isn't that what the Surface is about, is the reference machine that's, that's, that's MacBook comparable? I, I would... Definitely say that. I'd say not necessarily MacBook comparable, but uh, superseding MacBook capabilities. And I'm seeing I'm seeing things like the Dell Venue line that I really like, and Lenovo's got a, a good line of uh, devices. And I'm not talking about the yoga. I can't think of the the line, but they've got one that's kind of similar. And I believe I saw an uh, an HP or somebody this week a commercial this weekend where they had one that the the you know the device the the screen actually docked into the keyboard. It was sort of surface-like, but not quite as sexy. Hmm. Um, and so I think they're they're kind of trying, but I'm I'm get, I'm starting to become a little more concerned that they're really losing ground to the to these MacBooks. Yeah, and you know, and they're they're not shabby pieces of hardware. You're not going to go into the store and buy one for five hundred dollars. That's for sure. No. But you know, most college kids have a MacBook now, and I'm starting to see more and more guys in the suits and stuff carrying a MacBook in the airport. For a long time, we've just presumed that Macs were like under 10% of the market. I just don't know if that's true anymore. Yeah, my informal right now, I would give it 30 to 40% of actual what people want to use. They may be carrying some of them. I've heard on, in the airports and stuff talking amongst themselves, and 
they've got a laptop that they just don't like using and they they're using their Mac to you know to do whatever they want to do like email and stuff and it's their personal device and that gets into your bring your own device scenario that you were talking about early on yeah mm. these are people who are consciously making a decision to spend a thousand to three thousand dollars on a Macintosh because it's the one they want to play on because the hardware is just better and it's not and it's not locked down from their IT department which you know that's still to me a big problem we've got these IT departments that lock machines down so that people really can't be productive and there's that there's that trade-off how do we make this secure so we don't breach our data but at the same time allow our people to actually be productive and um there's not a right answer. Yeah, when I look at modern Ultrabooks, and I've got the Samsung 940X, the Series 9 machine, mm -hmm. that thing every way is comparable to a MacBook, except it's about half the price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're paying a lot for that operating system, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just Apple's able to, has always charged high for the Mac. And that's what's interesting when you talk about iOS encroaching into the mobile space. There are no $1,000 iPads. So how would you justify a $3,000 laptop built on that stack? Um, you can actually buy a $1,000 iPad, I think, the 128 gig. Yeah. With cell connection, especially. I think it is right at $1,000. Right around that marker. And all you got to add to that is a keyboard, really, and a clamshell case. Which is another $50 to $100 right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So suddenly... Uh, a dressed up, an iPad turned into a laptop would be in the same price range as the modern PC Ultrabook. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Now that you can get Office on the iPad, that's another selling point. Yeah. Except that the Ultrabooks don't typically come with cell connections, you know, cell hardware. No, it depends on the model. Yeah, there's a few that are starting to go there, but I'm not sure how that's going to... That's eventually got to be the way things are ultimately going to work because... We're going to go to this ubiquitous Wi-Fi connection where you just say buy a you know connection from AT and T and you can go anywhere in the country and you're on your own little connection. You know, and that's a whole like nother show, my friend, because that has <laughs> tons of yeah. Don't step on that landmine. You're going to set me off. Tons of problems with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe no. next year. <laughs> and then maybe not those companies either. They're impediments to that. Yep. Yeah, it's, Not that it's, I'm angry or anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Chris, <laughs> tell me where you're speaking coming up or if you got any videos online that you want people to uh, check out. Um, no videos at the moment. Uh, Dev Connections is September, week of September 15th, and I will be talking. i got four sessions there. One's on touch. I know one's got to be on performance. One's going to be on single-page web applications. And I think the other one is responsive design. But don't hold me to that. I'll have to go look at the schedule. So, All right. Very good. Well, uh, good luck with that. And hey, thanks a lot for spending time with us. It's been great. It's always good talking to y'all. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, 
and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a